The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guest, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we have a great guest, especially for all of our business students and our wonderful people driving by in our business communities, because we have the no-nonsense lawyer with us, Hannah Hassel Kelchner, who is the author of The Business Guide to Legal Literacy, which is a great book. I have it sitting right in front of me. And I just finished reading it. It is wonderful. Let me tell you a little bit about Hannah. She's a licensed attorney, educator, speaker, and author of the Business Guide to Legal Literacy. Her legal career began in Washington, D.C., spanning private and government practice, including service at the U.S. International Trade Commission, where one of her cases was decided by President Reagan. Moving to in-house practice, she developed a diverse portfolio of increasing responsibilities at various large corporations, including Degusa Corporation and Reichhold, Inc. Hannah has her undergraduate degree from Duke University, where my son Brian went, which is fun, a beautiful place. Her MBA degree from Cornell University in New York and her law degree from Rutgers University. And besides serving on the advisory board of We Comply, Inc. and the editorial board of the Journal of Business Ethics Education, Hannah also hosts a blog at www.legalliteracy.com. And she speaks to various audiences on how legal literacy can enable higher business performance. And that's what her book is all about because you don't want to be calling a lawyer all the time. There's so much you need to be learning, and this guide is really terrific. So I want to thank you for joining us this evening all the way from the East Coast in the beautiful Chapel Hill. Thank you, Hannah. Well, thank you for having me, Mari. Why did you write this book? It's a great book. Well, thank you. Thank you. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, and I always just saw law as a natural extension of business. And, you know, when I started practicing, I realized that many managers avoided lawyers and sort of looked at the law as a necessary evil or a cost of doing business, basically something to be avoided the way many people view going to the dentist. At the same time, I saw really smart business people make decisions that had these negative legal consequences. And I thought, my gosh, if only they knew how to make these little micro-adjustments, these tweaks here and there, they could avoid all these costly headaches and, and really get some macro results. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Right. It absolutely does. You know, years ago, I, I chaired the Preventive Law Committee of the State Bar of here in California because that's exactly what we were thinking. Why, why can't people learn how to protect what they're doing, prevent a lot of the aggravation that they have to go through? And that's why it's terrific. Every manager should know what this is, and every business owner should have that kind of legal literacy. So who else should read it besides the managers and the CEOs? Well, I think anybody who's interested in to get a better handle on managing legal risk and people who want peace of mind about the things they do that they might have overlooked. You know, it could certainly be someone in management, but it could also be an employee 
you know, that would look at it from the perspective of protecting their careers. Exactly. What are some of the things that they're going to learn? I mean, I read the book, but why don't you tell my, my audience some of the great things that they're going to be learning in this book? Well, when you pick up and you read The Business Guide to Legal Literacy, it's, it's going to transform the way you think about the law and legal risk. Uh, you'll, you'll learn to recognize hidden legal traps and roadblocks for running your business. Let me give you an example about a a customer service rep. We're not talking about anybody very high up the chain of command here, but somebody who processes orders and so forth. And and, um, they would routinely get these acknowledgments that, you know, that the customer had received paperwork and so forth. And she'd routinely sign them, like, not thinking about it at all. It's like a receipt. Well, one day she actually looked at the legal language that was on there, you know, the typical little small print on the back that people really don't want you to read, but is always good if you do. And she realized that instead of a receipt, what the acknowledgement was, was acknowledging that the buyer's terms and conditions of purchase were going to govern the transaction. So that little piece of paper changed the rules of the game. And there were some inconsistencies with the seller's terms and conditions. She didn't know. And, you know, it wasn't her fault. Nobody had ever told her. And that's, you know, that reminds me of, of like this engineer that came up to me after a seminar once about document creation and how to avoid smoking gun documents. We talked about tips about how to get your business message across without creating smoking gun documents. And that would come back and haunt you in a lawsuit. And he came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I've been working here for close to 30 years and nobody's ever told me this. And so, you know, people didn't know what they had been missing out on. Then um, that's why I wrote the book. There's many, many ideas in there, and any one of them is, is worth the price of admission, as they say. Exactly. And, you know, so many times, you know, you think only the manager should read it, but if it doesn't get communicated down to the to the worker bees, they're the ones that are the weakest link, aren't they? And well, they're the ones that, yeah, it. yeah. So what, what are some of the big mistakes that the managers do make? Well, I think instead of mistakes, I'd rather call them misunderstandings. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, but I think one of the biggest misunderstandings or myths is, is that the legal issues are somehow separate from the business issues. They're really not. They're very much intertwined. Just about every business decision that's made has uh, a legal component to it. And, and many times things go smoothly and people aren't necessarily cognizant of it. But a lot of times they're, they're not aware, and that's exactly when the wheels can start coming off. Um, you know, there was an engineer once working on a quality control project, and basically he was on a really tight deadline to build a piece of equipment that could accurately monitor certain production processes that were about to be subject to regulation. So the clock was ticking, and to help him, and they really weren't sure what was going to be the best you know, sort of tech fix for this, so they engaged two different design companies and sort of said, go ahead, you know, what can you do for me? And sure enough, they had different technologies, different approaches to the problem. They figured, we'll, we'll pick the best of the two. Well, about two-thirds of the way through, they realized that one of these solutions would have infringed a patent, didn't do the patent search up front. So, you know, after we sort of worked through it and, you know, designed around it and everything, he said, you know, at first we thought this was just a technical problem. But now we realized it was a technical problem with a big legal component. And the next time we need to move those kinds of um, reviews up earlier in the process. It could have saved some time and money, especially since they were on such a tight deadline. So, I mean, you know, 2020 hindsight is perfect. But being able to be proactive, as, as the committee you were, were on, um, just makes a tremendous amount of sense. And, you know, and we know there's about 90% of all businesses in our country are really small and medium-sized businesses. They're not all General Motors or Bank of America who have in-house counsel. There are all, most companies don't have the luxury of having in-house counsel. And if they don't have the luxury of in-house counsel, they surely better have some idea of when there is a legal problem. And maybe they they will just just by reading your book, just getting enough information to know that, that uh oh, we better at least ask a lawyer about this, or we better take our our care with this a little bit more. That's why they need the you know to read your book and books like it, the Business Guide to Legal Literacy, because most people just they go ahead and they don't really know what's going on. Years ago, I sat on the board of a church, and um, 
I didn't want to be on the board. I just was so busy. But then finally, I decided to be on the board because I was finding that if I wasn't on the board, they'd get into problems and then they'd ask me for legal help afterwards. (laughs) So I decided it was probably better to be on and, and say, wait a minute, this might be a problem and avoid it before it happens. So that's kind of what happens when you have enough information about some of the legal problems that you might encounter by just reading ahead and having that at, at a conscious level. Don't you think that's helpful? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a great assessment uh, because it's just knowing what questions to ask and when to ask them. Not that, you know, somebody has to read this book and try to be a, a lawyer by themselves. That's not the point at all because especially, as you said, so many businesses are small and medium-sized businesses. We're not talking about enormous, huge, complex legal issues. These are precisely the ones that can be spotted early on and can, you know, small adjustments that can help make a better business decision because now you don't have to look over your shoulder to see, okay, what can go wrong? You've anticipated. You've covered the basis. And it's not like you've got to change your business goal. If anything, you're going to be on much more solid footing going forward. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, so many small businesses are subject to the same kind of really strict and and very uh, challenging laws that the big businesses are, are subject to. You know, I, I think about the ones that, that I advise people on. It's like the security breach notification mm-hmm. and and things like that, that there it doesn't matter if you're a one-man show. If you collect sensitive information, you're subject to the same law that Bank of America or Wells Fargo or any of the big companies are, are subject to. So it's really important that you, you read, you have enough information to ask good questions. And so I think it's terrific. We're speaking now with the author of The Business Guide to Legal Literacy, and I've got this book right in front of me. We're speaking with Hannah Hassel Kelchner, who is an attorney and author, and she's living in beautiful Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So let's go on and find out what is what are the two key drivers of lawsuits? You know, when you take these lawsuits and you stand back, there's really, you know, two things that drive them. One is the merits of the case. Either the facts and or the law are going to be in somebody's favor or they're not. And they have a strong case or they don't. But that alone doesn't determine whether somebody is going to file a suit. The other thing is how angry they are. The emotional fact. You know, someone told me this great story. This was years ago, shortly after I got, a, got out of law school, about this hairdresser. This was in a small town in New Jersey, and a friend of mine had set up her solo practice. And this was one of her first cases that came through the door, and she was just like beside herself, because here was this local beautician in a salon who had this elderly woman come in, you know, for her weekly wash and perm and so forth, and one day she had the permanent wave done, and, you know, the chemical processing of the hair, well, something went wrong. You know, when they do it, they, they put the hair on these little tiny rods in order to get it all nice and, and wavy, and then they put a neutralizing solution on after a period of time, after the processing's happened. Well, the lady leans back in the sink to have the neutralizing solution put on, and all of a sudden, these curlers start falling out with the hair still attached. Oh, goodness. <laughs> she, she was partially bald and oh, no. horrified about facing her husband. She's like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I mean, she, I, I can't go to public like this. Right. Luckily, the salon was big enough that the stylist could find a wig. And she found one in a color that was very close to hers. And, you know, a couple little snip snips here and there. She styled it, and it was, it was passable. So, she, you know, her panic subsided. And as she's gathering her purse and she's ready to leave, the stylist says to her, you know, you don't have to tip me today. Yeah. <laughs> and she was just like, tip you? <laughs> She was just steaming, totally steaming, to the point where the next day she went marching into a lawyer's office and had him file suit. And my friend did, you know, and they filed against the salon, against the stylist, and the manufacturer of the solution. Yes. And they won. I mean, that was a no-brainer. I mean, there was clearly some liability. But, I mean, Mari, you do mediation practice. Yeah, yeah. How could that have been nipped in the butt? Absolutely could have been nipped in the butt by saying, oh, my goodness, we are so sorry. What can we do to help you? How can we, wh- what would you like from us to make this work for you? We are so sorry. Or, you know, something like that. Not only will you get, you know, your hair 
you know, when it, when it grows in, will we do anything for you or how can we buy you the best natural hair wig? What can we do? Because often when you ask the question, what can we do to make it up to you? They're going to come up with something that might be really a total solution that you would never have even thought of that might even be less than what you might have offered. Mm-hmm. And they'll come back. And they'll come back. Because I tell you, this woman didn't come back. Not just that, but she told her friends about what happened. So now they're not coming back. Right. You know? And it's, it is how you treat people. Yep. You know, to, I, this reminds me of today. I went to, to my eye doctor and I had some problem with my eye. And there were some things that should have been done that weren't done. But he has been so super nice, so wonderful. And having me back and doing all that he can do and constantly telling me what a good job I'm doing to make this thing work for my eye better. That, I, you know, he said to me today, he said, thank you so much for your patience with us. I had a little surgery and it, it didn't go as well as I had hoped. But you know what? He's such a great guy and I love him so much and he's making it work that I didn't think to sue him. Your customer service is so important. How you treat people like you want to be treated. Absolutely. And, and the accountability factor. It's not like, well, that's the way it is. Take it or leave it, right? It's right. Like you were in this together with him. Right. To find a solution. I mean, a partnership. I mean, that I've, it doesn't get any better than that. But the key is being able to recognize the warning signs. If that stylist had been more cognizant and more aware that, oh my God, I'm responsible for some of this. Maybe the, the timer wasn't set properly. Maybe I put too much solution on. Maybe I didn't check the date on the box and it was expired. I mean, there could have been so many steps along the way where something went wrong. If she had recognized that she had some responsibility, then I'm sure she wouldn't have been so flippant. And and an apology as well. Oh, yes. You know, I was just reading an article about Craigslist and the CEO of Craigslist, and there was a murder uh, a murder on Craigslist before the the Boston medical student, and um, I forgot the the last name of the the woman who was murdered, young woman Kathleen, who was who was murdered, and the CEO of Craigslist talked to the parents and actually helped them sponsor a memorial fundraiser for the daughter, and came and spoke at this memorial, wow. and now they're. And he said, we are so, this is, we are so sorry. This is such a tragic thing that happened that the family is not suing Craigslist. They are working together. They're trying to help the family to get over it. And I think Craigslist is realizing that they do, even though under the law, these websites don't have liability, they are stepping to the plate. Craigslist is stepping to the plate and trying to show that they are caring. And I think that goes a long way for at least this one family that did not sue Craigslist. Absolutely. Yeah. So remember, as you're driving by and you're a business owner here in Newport Beach or any kind of business, even a governmental agency, how you treat people, if you're if you apologize, if you're kind to other people, If you're a doctor and you're driving by and you're hearing this, it's okay to say, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And it's not necessarily an an admission of guilt. And it goes a long way to try and help people so that you don't have to get into a lawsuit. And yes, you may have to pay and you may have to do something, but at least if you do it in a way that shows that you're caring, you can avoid a lot of the acrimony and expensive litigation costs and fees. Yeah, fees, they just keep going up, up, up. Especially in California, it's, it's horrendous. So what other things should businesses do to avoid lawsuits? What about learning to negotiate themselves? What about them taking these types of things to alternative dispute resolution? What do you think about that? Oh, I think those are all outstanding ideas. The more you can negotiate, the more opportunity you have to to strengthen the business relationship because, you know, no relationship is perfect. I think it's too much to ask of one to be perfect. But at least you're saying, look, you know, we have something of value to you and you have something of value to us. And if something goes wrong, you know what, together we'll find a solution, we'll find a way to make it better, and just think about the trust that it builds in the meantime. The process of working through the issues. Exactly. And people want to do business with people and businesses that they trust. If they don't trust the business, they don't want to go back and they won't go back. So negotiating and working out a solution and finding ways to work together 
whether they do it through negotiation or getting a third-party neutral, this is going to go a long way to save them the embarrassment. And how about the privacy? You know, when you go to court, what kind of privacy do you have? Oh, unless you're, you're going to get some kind of protective order, you have like next to none. And the courtroom is just such an unpredictable place. Exactly. And every time you file something with the court, that becomes public record. And even if you do get some some of the information to be sealed, think about all the clerks and all the people at the courthouse who have access to that information. So again, it's not private. And anything you want to keep private about your business, if you're smart, you'll try and work out solutions outside of the courtroom. We're speaking with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, who is the author of this great book called The Business Guide to Legal Literacy, What Every Manager Should Know About the Law. So, Hannah, why do so many cases get settled right at the courthouse steps? Well, you know, by the time you reach the eve of trial, both parties, as you know, have just spent so much time and money on a case. They've exchanged a substantial amount of documents and other information. There's been sworn testimony in the form of depositions. So at that point, people are pretty focused. They've got an idea of who's going to say what. And they should also have a good idea of the strengths and weaknesses of their case. You know, we, we talked a minute ago about, you know, what drives a lawsuit and certainly the merits of the case, how good the case law is in your favor as it stacks up to the facts, but also the emotional component. By the time you get to the eve of trial, that emotional component has usually been worn down some. Um, The expense will do that. Just the sheer time and effort it takes to prepare will do that as well. And then when you're looking at what might be an uncertain outcome in court, it's really only a handful of circumstances where somebody is going to take it to the mat. And so what it does is it really sort of tees up the parties to be more realistic about what they might or might not be able to achieve. And it it makes it prime time for a mediator such as yourself to come in and and bridge the gap. Exactly. You know, even if you've done a lot of discovery and you've had depositions and you've had interrogatories and you think you know your case really well, you don't know what the jury's going to do. You don't know how they're going to perceive you. You don't know what the judge is going to think. Last week, I was supposed to be testifying in trial as an expert. And um, the, the night before... The attorney called me and said, well, the case is over, so <laughs> you don't have to come tomorrow. I mean, this is after weeks of preparing, et cetera, but they were not happy with what the judge was doing, so they ended the case. They were oh. not happy. So, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You're always better off if you can be legally literate to know what's coming, and then if you can be savvy and negotiate, and you can read this wonderful book called The Business Guide to Legal Literacy, and this is by Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. So let's talk a little bit about how concerned should business owners and managers be about business communication? Well, well, business communication is the lifeblood of everything. It's for business. Of course, they call it communications, but lawyers like you and I call it evidence. So knowing how to avoid smoking gun documents is a really essential part of the strategy for controlling legal risk. And, uh, you know, today we've got more ways to communicate than ever before. And that also means miscommunicate, you know, email, texting, cell phones. And then you've got the whole social networking yes. um, venue, uh, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn, Facebook. It just goes on and on. And, and next week they may have something new. Exactly. And, and, you know, some companies are even starting to have their own little social networking themselves. I was speaking with the privacy officer of GE, General Electric, and they're actually setting up within their own company. They're setting up their own social networking and Twitter. Would you believe? It just amazes me. It just well, I you know I think <laughs> it plays a really important role in the community because it's creating a sense of community, which is what we all crave to be a part of. You know, we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and that's great. But I think people need to use these tools in a smart way so that they don't run into privacy problems that, that you see on a regular basis. Right. And, and they don't create other pitfalls that create misunderstandings, that fuels acrimony, and escalates into lawsuits. So you want to be able to showcase your message in the communication medium that puts what you have to say in the best light. And one size doesn't fit all. Right. 
And how do you advise businesses with all this social networking and all this easy access to the internet and texting and what kind of advice do you do you give to businesses that are driving by right now that they have a lot of employees who are so used to all of this technology to use it what about these thumb drives where they can take information from the computer that maybe has sensitive data about the company or has sensitive information about the employees or the customers. How do you advise them about that? Well, that that's a, a multi-part question there, but I think <laughs> a very, very important one um, because your information is, is the lifeblood of your business. I mean, that's how you operate, how you function. Um, you know, certainly nobody goes out and, and hires employees that are out to defraud you. Um, that That's never the intent. So, uh, the way to make sure employees understand what's expected of them is to explain it to them. And hopefully you've got good policies in place and that they're living policies that are enforced in a, on a daily basis so that they understand what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And that you also have the proper technology in place in order to identify, you know, have an early warning system um, for any potential breaches. Right. Right. And how do you enforce that? That's that's a real tough one now with all of these devices. How do you really enforce all of these policies? Well, you're right. It, it's a huge challenge because there are so many devices. I think in large part, just as, as with financial controls, if there's going to be some technology controls, the way to measure uh, level of compliance is to have standards that you can audit against to see whether the right things are happening. Now, they may be imperfect, and they're probably going to be um, adjusted over time as people learn more about the technology, how it's being used or misused. It's typically the misuse that triggers, oh, well, now this we need to look for next time around so that we don't get hurt. Um, but I, I think so much of it, too, goes back to relationships. You know, we talked earlier about relationships with your customers, with your clients. But also, I think in this situation, relationships with your employees. Yes. And and that is what we see when we talk about the unscrupulous employees that I see that are doing things to their employers when there is that lack of morale or, you know, we even see people committing all sorts of violence against their employers when they feel that they're being treated uh, poorly or there is bad morale. So how do we get companies to to increase the morale? That's a real leadership issue. It's a very complex issue. And I think you're right. It's all about leadership, isn't it? It's about being savvy, about understanding who you're dealing with, treating your employees with respect, letting them know that whatever the policies are, the reasons behind them and how it protects them as well as the customers. I know that's that's a real problem when we're talking about treating sensitive information, how would they want their sensitive information to be treated? It's bad when you have employees who have managers who don't care about them, because that's when it comes back to, to really bite. Right. And I, I think you're right. It's so much of it is on the sort of mid-level basis, you know, the, the individual managers. I mean, I've, I've seen organizations um, with lots of hierarchy, but there could be pockets of really outstanding managers where people are clamoring to work in that particular department because it's, it's truly a team. And they get feedback on a regular basis um, that shows them you know, what's appreciated about them and also where there could be room for improvement. But it's, it's taken in a different spirit, um, one of, of constructive feedback, of wanting to be better, of wanting to improve because everybody else is depending on it and they really feel like they make a difference. Exactly. And, you know, so... Um, and that yet there could be other pockets of the company where employees don't feel that way and there are morale issues. So, um, I know. Don't you sometimes go into a business and you can just tell that from the top down, they really stress being happy and being good to their fellow employees as well as customers. I mean, there are certain stores I go into and I can just tell that everybody's being treated right. They're they're really going out of their way to treat the customers right. They're really friendly and outgoing. 
And then there's other places. You might go to one restaurant and they're just wonderful. They're bending over backward. They're talking to you. They're happy. We just, you know, recently went somewhere and we were just saying how great everyone was from the hostess to everyone, the the waiter. You could just tell that there was a happy place to work. And then you go into another place and these people have smirks on their faces and they're miserable. And it might be a very expensive place, but you can just tell it comes from the top down. How are we going to set up this whole ambiance of the, you know, treating the customer right and treating our inside customer as well as our outside customer right? Yeah, because when they're happy, it's contagious. Exactly. Exactly. And you can sense it as a customer. You can sense it. So how concerned should the business owners and managers be about the business and the communication that's going on in their environment? Well, I would think that they should be very concerned um, because, as you said, it, it, you know, other people can sense what's going on as far as, as whether there's a good vibe or a negative vibe, but also in terms of the things that do get said or do get written, they are creating a record for the business, and if communications channels are misused, you know, that it's not going to tell a pretty story, and that's the kind of thing that fuels lawsuits. It's, it's the evidence. So you definitely want to be able to use communications channels and pick the one that will showcase your message in a way that puts it in the best possible light. So what are the, you know, when we're talking about these communication traps or these things that don't work, what are some of the communication traps that people should avoid when they're in business? Well, you know, you touched on one earlier. I mean, certainly the confidentiality in order to be able to maintain privacy but I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is not sticking to business. You know, with all of these electronic gadgets that we have, it's real easy to blur the business personal lifeline because, you know, some folks are expected to be accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so sometimes they do use uh, company email or their Blackberries or uh, whatever gadgets they have to conduct some of their personal business. Yes, yes. And sometimes it's on company time, and, um, you know, it, it can create other, other issues, you know, sometimes even leading to problems with fellow employees, you know, in the, the neighborhood of in the range of harassment claims or retaliation claims. Like this one guy who, um, that he was a co-worker with this woman, and, you know, basically they were peers, and he's like, hey, let's go to lunch. Oh, okay, well, we want to go. Well, how about we go to your place? And this is going on with email traffic here. And she's like, well, you know, I didn't go grocery shopping. I'm really not prepared to entertain. He's like, well, we don't have to eat. Well, you know where that was headed. Yeah, right. You know? And this so, is all an email written down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the thing is, like 18 months, 24 months later, he suddenly promoted and becomes her supervisor. Right. And it's performance review time, and she thinks she's getting a raise. In reality, she's getting a pink slip. And she's like, what's this all about? oh, well, performance, blah, 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 you know, the usual types of disclaimer stuff. Next thing you know, she's filing a wrongful discharge claim. Right, and she's saying because uh, he, she feels that he did this to her because she rejected his advances. So this exactly. was a sexual harassment, hostile environment, all that exactly. stuff. Exactly, and she kept the email. And as soon as that came out, the case settled rather quickly after. And it, it's scary. And I've I've had my own little tiff that I've learned from. But, you know, we use email and we use it flippantly, you know, very quickly. It's a mm-hmm. quick way to communicate. But when you're doing that in business and with other business people and with vendors and with other people that you have to do business with, your customers, your employees, this is really the time that you should not be sending an email till you've read it a couple times <laughs> because you could be very, very sorry. And like you said, this woman kept her email and it was great for her lawsuit. Oh, yeah. It, it took care of it. You know, they couldn't allow that to, to come out in open court. So, I mean, that was settled very early on in the process. But I, I knew somebody that was sitting in the office when that email came over the fax machine, because they, at first they're like, oh, this is he said, she said kind of thing, until their lawyer faxed over that email, and, and they said, you could have heard a pin drop in that. Right. You know, that, that was one of those, ah, oh, shoot, you know, how, how can you possibly respond to this outside of saying, okay, let's talk numbers. Right, 
you know. So, so when should when should a business person consult? Let's say it's a smaller business. They don't have in-house counsel. Or if they do have in-house counsel, when should they go speak with their in-house counsel? And when should they go and, if they're a smaller business, seek outside counsel to give them some advice? Well, advice about what types of things, Mari? Well, let's say they're worried about an email that they that they saw or they're they're worried about some policy that that employees are um, upset with, for example, that they can't use the internet during the day or they're not supposed to get any personal calls on the office telephone or they're not supposed to use the computer for their own personal email. What about that? Is that a time that they should talk to legal counsel? Well, I, I think if they, I think anytime somebody has a legal concern, it's, it's worth spending a half hour or an hour with somebody to um, voice their concern and see whether it's, it's just them being fearful or how much legal basis there is to support that concern. Right. Because sometimes the issues is part legal but part business in terms of um, making a policy decision, and it's more of a business preference as opposed to a legal mandate. That's not to say it doesn't have some risk, but, you know, the goal of trying to be legally literate or proactive doesn't mean bringing risk down to zero. It means recognizing what the risk is and determining whether that's at a level that you can live with or not. Right. Because not every policy decision is going to be a popular one. You know, will you be able to convince your employees that it's in everybody's best interest, including their own, not to, you know, make personal calls on, on company time? Or is it a matter of degree that, yes, okay, there could be situations where personal calls have to be made because they're trying to set up a doctor's appointment and it can only be done during business hours. Well, guess what? They have business hours, too. So if you have to do it after work, the office is closed. It kind of becomes impossible. But, you know, it's a matter of degree as opposed to somebody that's doing all of their holiday shopping on company time and, and doing it, you know, for five out of eight hours. You know, that's another story. That's abusive. Right. So um, I think it's a balancing act between um, where the legal exposure is, how big the exposure is, what the consequences could be, is it worth it, and also about, um, well, let's, you know, what's the employee perspective? What is going to be enforceable? Because if you have a really draconian policy, it's going to be honored in the breach. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so you set yourself up for failure in that regard. And then that's a whole other issue. We're speaking with Hannah Hassel Kelchner, who is an attorney, and she's the author of The Business Guide to Legal Literacy. And we're talking about communications and how communicate. Well, everything is communications, right? I mean, we're communicating right now. Right. <laughs> everything that we do is communications. And whether we're negotiating or we're trying to get a deal or we're trying to resolve conflict, it's all different levels of communication. So that's going to be like utmost, the, the highest importance in any kind of business. So how can, how can uh, companies set up valuable policies with regard to communications? Well, I think, number one, they need to understand what or recognize that employees can't follow what they can't understand. So, you know, if they have some policies in place, you know, let's pull them out, dust them off, take a look at them. How many are there? Are they all in one place? Are they understandable? Are they written in legalese? Or, or can the average person read them and know what it means? And I think it's so important that you said take them out and dust them off because if you get into court, they're going to ask for those handbooks and those policies. And if no one knows about them, that's going to be negligent just from that get-go, right? Well, it's not going to be helpful. That's true. And, and the thing is, you know, policies usually aren't just written one time and then, you know, put up there like the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, they get added on to, and there could be a little piece here and a little piece there. And so sometimes they're inconsistent with one another. Exactly. And, you know, first, if you can identify where all of them are, and they may not all be called policies, you know, some of them may be procedures or guidelines or mandates or, 
know, different companies have different jargon. Right. But what are they? Where are they? How long did it take to find them? You know, can you understand them? You know, if you can't understand them, how do you expect your employees to understand them? And then just start clearing out the clutter, you know? I mean, some policies that made sense 10 years ago may not make sense today. That's absolutely right, and I have seen that. I've seen policies that people say, oh, well, we don't do that anymore, (laughs) you know? And then you go, well, why is this in here? Why aren't you updating these policies? And one of the things that I know a lot of companies are starting to do is when they have policies, whether they're privacy policies, which is really one of the expertise that I have, or whether they have security and, and technology policies, they actually have little tests that they give them that Mm -hmm. after they you know that they update them and then they have people go online and they take a a self-test to see how much did they know and if they got something wrong they they learn so it's very important if you have a smaller business you might want to have little training and have little feedback so that you know that people understand but if you have a large corporation you may want to have some of these online training and then online tests to make sure that people really do know what's going on. Oh, yeah. The training and, and the, the online tools are just terrific. And what about, what do you think about having anonymous little boxes where people who have a problem or have a worry that work at the corporation or work at the business, that they can give the feedback without fear of retaliation? I think those are good things. I think anything that helps provide some feedback to management is helpful. Now, they may not always want to hear it, but, you know, if, if some things start coming in in a repetitive fashion, then it's probably something that deserves attention yes. one, one way or another. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and I, I think it's a, overall it's a good thing. You know, when people are driving by right now and they're hearing two lawyers talk, they're probably thinking, oh, you know, the only thing I ever have to worry about is a lawsuit and I've never been sued, and I don't worry about it, and I've got insurance. So to those business people who are driving by and those business students, what are some other legal business, other uh, legal risks that businesses face that are, you know, that are besides lawsuits? Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, Well, so much of business is conducted with contracts. And even if you're not looking to sue somebody, I mean, you want to make sure that your contracts are working and protecting you the way they're supposed to work and protect you. So there's contract risk. There's regulatory compliance risk, depending on the nature of your business. And all of those things roll up into things like reputation risk, because if the bad thing happens, it doesn't have to be a lawsuit. It could just be some really, really bad PR that turns into an investigation. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, your reputation can be terribly damaged. Um, and then on the, oh gosh, just uh, as another example that, that is very proactive, is asset protection and asset creation, which is something I get really excited about because all too often we're trying to uh, plug holes and fix damage and things like that. But intellectual property is a wonderful, wonderful way um, to create value and assets, whether it's patents or trademarks and trademarks protecting your brand, your platform, to, to keep other people from imitating you is, is just one of the key unfair trade practice protections that's available to you. So, oh, yeah, go for it. Exactly. So people have to think about what do you do when you're not on a lawsuit? What kind of legal risks do you have of, of someone just stealing all your, your assets away by stealing who you are, your trademark? Or trade secrets, your customer list. Yes, your customer list and maybe what, you know, the like you said, the patents that they're developing. I actually was an expert witness on a, on a poor guy's case where he had developed a patent that was stolen by a very big company, and it took him years of litigation to to get back what was rightly his. So, you know, those are the kinds of things you want to think about ahead of time and the, the, when you were talking about contract making with your vendors and your, who you outsource to, you need to build into those contracts things that will protect you, such as if you are outsourcing, making sure that those companies that you're outsourcing to are going to be compliant with the laws 
and be compliant with your policies as well. And that's otherwise it's going to come back to bite you later that you didn't get what you had asked for. Absolutely, and indemnities, because if you're counting on them to provide you with a key service or some kind of component and then they don't deliver, that means you're not going to be able to deliver. So you want to be able to knock on them their door and say, uh, by the way, this is what you promised, you broke your promise, we need to talk. Yes, and also when you were talking about contracts and how it shouldn't be legalese, that's one thing, you know, as a mediator, all of my agreements are very down to earth so that everybody understands the expectations and no one can come back later and say, well, that was ambiguous. I didn't understand it. You know? Yeah, and that's the way it should be. This isn't about surprises or having legal tricks up anybody's sleeve. It's like, this is business. You know, who, who wants to have time for all the legal stuff? It should be clear. It should be upfront. You work through it and then you can keep on rolling. Right. And, you know, you and I, not only as attorneys, but as business owners, we don't want to be in litigation either. Thank God I've never been in litigation with my own firm, and I never want to be. Obviously, we have insurance to protect us from that. But the other thing is, is that, like you said, if you're in business, you don't want to be spending your time or your money, all your hard-earned profits, you don't want to be spending that on litigation that is just, you know, it's bad money. You know, it's bad money. You throw it away. Absolutely. And the insurance company isn't going to give you a discount the next time around because you had more lawsuits last year. (laughs) Exactly. We are speaking with Hannah Hessel Kelchner, who is an attorney. She's called the no-nonsense lawyer. She is a licensed attorney, educator, professional speaker, and author of The Business Guide to Legal Literacy, What Every Manager Should Know About the Law. And she also hosts a blog at LegalLiteracy.com. Tell us about that blog. What, what will we find at your blog? Oh, wow. I have a lot of fun with the blog because, to me, the blog is an extension of the book. You know, I love to look at what is going on in the news and how it illustrates uh, the points that I make in the book and the principles and strategies that can be used, or and more often than not, in the news, how they could have been applied and shouldn't. <laughs> so... These are all cautionary tales, and um, so people will find you know, tips and examples and lessons learned, and uh, by the way, did you know about this? And um, we try to keep it interesting and, uh, and informative. Right. How does a business figure out what legal risks it should be concerned about? What, what are they? I noticed in your book you have a whole little toolkit here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how that may apply? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I think what, what businesses should be concerned about will vary from company to company as far as their size, as far as their industry, and sometimes even their geographic location. You know, California, for example, um, has some laws that we don't find in some of the other states. It's very progressive in certain areas, and everybody kind of follows suit a couple years later. So um, there will be some degree of variation, but I think the best way to find out what a, a particular business owner be concerned about is to do a mini risk assessment um, because it helps look at your business strategy in a new perspective and it identifies where you can make those micro adjustments in order to get maximum results. We're not talking about an extreme makeover here. We're talking about little tweaks, nips and tucks that can help improve overall performance. I know you have in here the ABCs of legal literacy. Why don't you tell my my audience a little bit about what they'll find in that? And you have this in the appendix in your book. Oh, see, that's you know that's the I think is the real hidden value of the book because it's like two books in one. You know, one the first part really talks about you know how to have a paradigm shift and, and look at the law as a business tool instead of this necessary evil. And then in the appendix, like you said, are these ABCs sort of the fundamentals that you need to know about contracts and product liability and antitrust and intellectual property. You know, the the basics um, that I feel are a good reference guide for anybody to have at their fingertips, along with questions to be, uh, that they can think about and how it would apply to their business. Right. You even have this, I thought this was interesting that you have in here about uh, the attorney's manual, the, uh, the Thompson's memo. This is about uh, criminal resource manual of the Federal Prosecution of Business Organizations. 
We have seen <laughs> in recent years all of the everything from Enron and Madoff and everybody else about and, and here in Orange County we've had some even with Broadcom. Um, what about the criminal aspect? We've been talking about civil issues, but what about the criminal risks? Since I graduated law school in the early eighties, um, I've just seen a whole lot more civil liabilities become criminalized over time. Um, we see it in the securities area. Uh, we see it in a number of areas. So, you know, people can actually go to jail these days for making a bad business decision. And one of the reasons I put that Thompson memo in there is because I wanted people to see the criteria that the government looks at. Now, that memo has been superseded and it's been revised somewhat, but I think as far as general precepts go, it's still valid. Um, and, and I think it's helpful for people to understand that sometimes you don't just get to walk away from your business. You may have personal liability, even if you're a manager in a large company, which again is why the policies help protect the company. Because if you have a rogue employee who says, oh, devil may care, I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm going to make these numbers, I'm going to get my bonus, I'm going to do this, and then they're misusing company resources contrary to policy. The company might survive, but that individual could wind up going to jail. So yes. We, we certainly don't want any of your listeners to be rogue employees, but um, it's very real. And, you know, we see the biggest headlines in the news, but there are also a number of smaller people that don't make quite the big headlines um, that do get caught in this trap. Yeah, it, you know, nowadays to be a business owner or to be a business, you have so many compliance issues. Yeah. And then you now have all this technology stuff and privacy and security issues. Every day we hear about security breaches. We hear so much about what's going on with with so much information technology. It's um it's it's really something else to try and manage all of your risks. And it's almost impossible for someone to do that. So what if a small business doesn't have a lot of money, but they want to be progressive and they actively want to manage their legal risks? Where, where should they start? Well, my recommendation is go to the bookstore, pick up the book, and just flip through it. Even if you don't buy it and just look at it, you're bound to get at least one idea that you can start using on Monday. Yes, exactly. And I, I love it. And I like the way that you put this into the three different uh, parts here. You've got how to create a winning legal attitude. And, and that isn't talking just about winning a lawsuit. <laughs> no, not at all. No. At all. It's, it's an overall approach and a way to think about the law as a business tool because I really do believe that a, a lot of people don't realize what they've miss, been missing. Yes. And it's a value added. If you know the law and you're doing everything you can to protect your employees and your clients and your customers and be savvy about the law, then they're going to respect that. That's going to be, that's going to show you as ethical and a trustworthy company. Absolutely. And, you know, doesn't it make sense to do the kinds of uh, behaviors and activities that are going to enhance your reputation and make people want to do more business with you? Right, right. I mean, that's right now, especially in our economy, right. there's businesses that are going out of, you know, out of business left and right. And the ones that are staying, the ones that are able to maintain are ones that are doing the right things, obviously. And so they're the ones that um, are staying in sync with what's going on and trying to be uh, understanding of their customers and, and really building trust. I think uh, another thing that you had in here that I thought was really important, and, and I work a lot with the Poneman Institute, I'm one of their fellows, and they talk about responsible information management and ethical leadership. What is the role of ethical leadership? It's first and foremost. Uh, everything else flows from that. Um, you know, ethics is, is, I think, an even higher level than just the written law, whether it's statute, constitution, you know, regulation, what have you, because it's that, that sense of morality. And it's interesting because in the research that I've done about um, ethics and what the key ethics principles are, 
they're pretty consistent from culture to culture around the world. Things like honesty, fairness, respect, and, and so forth. Um, they, they are consistent. And when those basic principles, those core values are violated, you know, that's when the rest of society sort of says, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not fair. There ought to be a law. And that's when you get the whole lawmaking process in. So I see a tremendous overlap between ethics and law. And sometimes because law is man-made and imperfect, um, there can be those gaps that some people call loopholes and they try to exploit them. And the ambiguities because, well, it's not illegal. Well, maybe not by definition, but in principle, it's going to be challenged. Right. And you know, that's where the ethics part comes in. And so sometimes I think if people would focus more on what they should do and what, instead of what they think they can get away with, they'll be ahead of the game. Right. And for me, when I see these privacy policies, for example, and then people change it quickly or they, uh, you know, the bait and switch that we see all the time, you, right. you see these ads, I think, you know, say what you mean, mean what you say, do what you say you're going to do, you know, and do it honestly. Well, now I'm hearing that. Would, would you believe this is already almost time to get get off? So wow. would, I can't believe it. Terrific. Well, I want you to um, tell us again your website and where people can get the business guide to legal literacy, what every manager should know about the law. Well, the book is available at all the major booksellers and Amazon.com. And uh, certainly please visit legallegalliteracy.www. Please visit www.legalliteracy.com. Well, we will do that. And we'll look at your blog and send you some emails. And we thank you so much, Hannah. You're terrific. And uh, I know the businesses that are driving by will find this very, very helpful for them. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Marty. It's been great. Okay, good night. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m., and also visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests, learn a little bit about them. Also, you can download our podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, and KUCI.org on the net. I'm pleased to also present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and we're welcoming back one of my favorite people, Jay Wasserman, who is the captain of the Harbor Patrol Reserve Unit, which supports the Orange County Sheriff's Department's Marine Operations Bureau, and he has been with the department 20 years just this month. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Mari. Last week we talked a little bit about the Harbor Patrol, but now we're going to get into it a little bit deeper. Your Harbor Patrol Reserve Unit offers a few boating safety awareness days each year during the boating season. Why don't you tell us about that? Because that's coming up soon. Oh, thank you. We provide boating safety inspections for people, volunteer, at the typically at the Newport Dunes launch ramp in Newport Beach. And when people uh, bring their boats in uh, to launch them, what we'll do is we'll offer a package of, of information, ABCs of safe boating, personal flotation device brochures, and just try to educate the general boating contingent of what's the, the rules of the road and what's uh, good safe boating. Since we're talking about safe boating and this is the boating season is coming here, luckily in California we can actually use our boats all year long. I know people from all over the county come and use our waters. So why don't you tell us a few of the important safety tips for using the Orange County waterways? I would be happy to. The, the most important thing is if you have any youngsters on board, it's, it's the law that they be in a life jacket. That's the first and foremost thing that we look for. 
the speed limit in all the Orange County harbors is five miles an hour or no wake. And many times the speedometers in boats give a very false reading. So people will be pushing a pretty good wake and that causes damage to docked vessels and other boats underway. So we just try to remind people that to keep the, the wake down and or five miles an hour. Other things to be cognizant of is uh, debris in the water, things of that nature. Accidents in the harbor, while very rare, are always going to be both persons' fault. Because of the low speed of vessels in the harbor, sometimes people think that, oh, the other vessel will turn. And the reality of, of that is, is that both vessels are required to take action to avoid any kind of a collision. And, uh, you know, when you're talking larger vessels, the combined weight of some of these boats can be significant, and you can have some pretty serious injury. So we like people just to keep their head up, looking around, make sure everybody is properly outfitted for safety, and obey the speed limit. And that's uh, probably the most we can ask for. And ask them not to drink alcohol and drive, right? Just like driving under the influence, we have boating under the influence. And we do the same field sobriety test, and uh, people get arrested and go to jail the same way for drunk boating. Uh, That's a big one. Well, we thank you so much, Captain Wasserman. (music) 